Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, good morning, church. I need you to open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah in your Old Testament. The book of Nehemiah, if you have your physical Bible with you and you're really unsure where that is, open to the middle. You're going to land somewhere in Psalms. Take a left. You're a couple of books just away from where Nehemiah is found. And while you're getting ready for that, I, I want to tell you why we're preaching this particular message this morning. Following the What About series, where we asked and answered questions that people in the world are asking of the church and sometimes against the church, uh, I felt like uh, with this one week in between our new series starting next week, that it'd be really important to have a message that talks about what do we now as Christians who want to remain faithful to the Lord, What's it going to take from us? What's it going to cost us? And how are we supposed to live our lives uh, trusting in a God who we can trust? And Nehemiah is one of the the perfect examples, I think, in Scripture. So I'm going to just tell you a story this morning. I'm going to walk you through the first five chapters of the book of Nehemiah. If you have your Bibles open, it'll be to your advantage. And I want you to see it. I'm really trying to entice you to read his story this week and be encouraged about the price it takes to remain faithful to a God we believe in. Now, if you don't like history and biblical history behind a certain book, I'm going to crush you right now, okay? So just take a five-minute mental vacation and join me in just a few minutes. But I want to give you the background to this story because it matters. If you go all the way back to when Adam or when uh, Abraham was called by God and God said, I'm going to begin with you and I'm going to build a nation from you, from your offspring. I'm going to build a nation of faith. And I'm going to save the world through this nation. I'm going to bring the Messiah through this nation. I'm going to give you a land of your own. And God was very, very clear that if they trusted him and remained faithful to him, he would bless and protect them. If they rejected him, he would leave them to their own devices and it would ultimately end up in them being taken captive. So that's the simple truth of it. God said, if you remain faithful to me, I'm going to protect you and bless you. If you reject me, you're going to be left up to yourselves and you cannot bless or protect yourself. And so God gave them this option. As we know with this nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, that they had good seasons, but more than not, they had bad seasons. And ultimately, they had leaders who followed God and received the the greatest of God's promises. And then they had leaders who did not follow God And they received God's hard promises. And so in the midst of all of this, King Solomon then, the the son of David, after the United Kingdom was all brought together and King Solomon reigned and he asked God for wisdom and for a season he was a follower of God and then he sold himself out to uh, the wives that he married and their religions and his alliances with other nations and Solomon just went right down the rat hole. And he threw away so many of God's good promises And he ultimately received many of God's hard promises. And as God had promised the nation, if they were godless, if they lived their lives without him, he would turn them over to their own power, to their own protection, to their own blessings. And we know that following Solomon, the 12 tribes of Israel were divided into two different groups. There were 10 tribes that were called the northern tribes, and they're known in your Bible following Solomon as Israel. And there were two tribes of the 12 called Judah. And we know that both of these kingdoms were characterized by idolatry and immorality. They were truly godless. Israel, the 10 tribes, was then taken captivity by the Assyrians. This nation came in as God had said they would, and they they just took them all into prison and, and made them slaves and took away their land and their possessions. And 
God said, this is what will happen if you don't follow me. And then several years, 130 some years later, Judah, the remaining two tribes in the Southern kingdom, they were taken captive by Babylon. The Israelites, the, the 10 tribes were absorbed into Assyria and never quite had the identity they had previous. Judah, however, survived in Babylon, a remnant remained, and this remnant's really important. So if you disconnected, come back. After they had rejected God and walked away from him and were unfaithful, God gave them over to the Assyrians and the Babylonians to punish them. And in the midst of this, there was a moment where uh, 48 years after they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians, a group came back to Jerusalem, the great city. And they tried to rebuild the walls, but they, they began to rebuild the temple. Now, it wasn't as ornate, as beautiful as Solomon's temple. Nothing ever probably will be. They began to build a place in the location that they could have temple worship. Uh, roughly 80 years later, uh, a religious man by the name of Ezra, his book, his story is in your Bible too. Ezra came in and he found a copy of God's law, the first five books of our Old Testament. And he read that to the people and the people repented because they realized God had only given them what they had asked for. And Ezra began a revival. He found the entire area in a state of spiritual and moral decay. It was worse than the condition of the great city, Jerusalem. And through his faithful teaching, people began to turn from their sins and started to focus back on God. 14 years after Ezra returned and started this revival movement, a man named Nehemiah, who was also a prisoner, but he was serving the king, Nehemiah had a conversation. And this is where we take off in Nehemiah's story. All of that background so you understand who he is and what he's doing. Nehemiah accomplishes in a very brief period of time an incredible feat. But instead of focusing on what an amazing man Nehemiah was, I wanna show you in his story what motivated him? What allowed him to accomplish anything that mattered? What drove him to such amazing feats? He was a man convinced of who God was and that God's glory was the most important thing. And what he accomplished by believing in the glory of God is, is a huge part of Israel's history. It's also a part of ours. So to do this well, I'm going to spend some time in the book of Nehemiah, hoping that you'll read it for yourself this week and spend some time in it. But I'm going to tell you five things about Nehemiah in the first five chapters. And we're just going to walk through this. I'm going to highlight a couple verses, and I promise you we'll do this as quickly and succinctly as we can. Let's begin with this. Nehemiah saw a need, and he sought the Lord first. He, he saw a need. The need was not his own. The need was no, of no benefit to him. This is the amazing thing about Nehemiah. What he saw was that the city of God, the testimony to the goodness and power of God was in neglect. That it was a statement to the world that God, a God who used to be an inept God, Nehemiah saw the need because some men had come from Judah, chapter one, verse three. They'd come from Judah and they'd reported to Nehemiah. He said, how's it going at home? Because he was a captive. And they said, the walls are torn down. The temple has been destroyed. Everything has been stripped out of it. All the valuables are gone. Everything that our identity as a nation is in shambles. And he was broken. Look at verse four, chapter one. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. 
So what's the big deal? The city got what it deserved. The people rebelled, God punished them. Why don't we just move on? Why is this such a big deal? But to Nehemiah, it wasn't the city. It wasn't the walls. It wasn't the temple. It was the glory of God, that this powerful God had, was still God. He was still almighty. And so what does Nehemiah do? He turns to God. The God whose punishment brought on this destruction, he turns to him. When you have a God you believe in, prayer will be your first response. It won't be your last ditch effort. And I wanna show you how he prayed because we can learn from Nehemiah's prayers. I know many of us come from a background where we don't wanna copy other people's prayers because it's not sincere. That's not true. You buy greeting cards. You let other people's thoughts and poetry inspire you. Let's let the prayers of the Bible inspire us too. Nehemiah recalls God's goodness. Verse five. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah knows who he's talking to. He says, God, you didn't want to punish us. We, we forced you to. You gave us your word, your faithfulness, and we rejected it. Our prayers are most helpful when we start with who we're addressing. I'll always tell someone, especially a young person in their faith who says, I don't know how to pray. I don't like, I don't like to pray. I don't understand it. I said, just start. Make your prayers nothing but this. Don't ask God for a single thing. Tell him what you think of him. Tell him who he is to you. Spend time praising his name. Don't do it insincerely and don't make stuff up like you're buttering him up. Tell him who he is. Tell him what he means to you. Tell him what a difference he's made in your life. And when you start focusing that, your prayers will become so natural that you'll worry less about what you ask for and you'll spend more time in worship. Amen. Nehemiah confesses Israel's sins next. There's a pattern here. You see, when we don't know who we are, worship will become drab to us and uninteresting. When we know who God is, we will then know who we are. And when we know who we are, then we will hear what God intends to do about our condition. And then how we'll respond to that is called worship. You see, Nehemiah does not presume that God owes them anything. He just knows God's character. And he knows that God's a God of love and a God of blessing and a God of protection. And so he appeals to him. When we confess our sins to God, it's not about bringing shame on ourselves. It's about identifying the truth of ourselves. It's reminding us where our soul really is. And he not only confessed his sins, he confessed his family's sins and the nation's sin. Look at verse six. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. See, one of the things I want to remind us when we look at these texts is that Nehemiah is not suggesting that his sin was what he did to others. He actually understands our sin is in defiance of God himself and his character. See, knowing who God is and what he's worth helps us know who we are and what we've done with that. And then Nehemiah requests God's help. Verse 8. Remember the instruction you gave your servants Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. 
They are your servants and your people who you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. This makes my tail wag so much. Nehemiah says, God, you said if we would repent, you would restore. He's only asking God to do what God has already said to do. One of the ways we embellish and grow in our prayer life is when we know the words of God. When we hold on to the promises he's given us, not the ones we want him to give, but the ones that he has promised us. And this is what Nehemiah does because God's mercy is always the answer to God's justice. God's mercy in our life will always be the answer to what our sins deem just. You see, they belong to God and it was reasonable that God would respond because he said he would. Verse 11. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. That's quite interesting. Let me tell you what's happening next. Nehemiah knows that this is something only God can do, to rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple and restore the city of Jerusalem to the glory of God. He knew he didn't have the power. He didn't have the responsibility. He didn't have the access. And so he says to God, if you call us back, we want to restore your city so the world knows this is the holy city of the most holy God. But he says, but I know that I got to go through a man to get this done. Nehemiah said, it's not up to me. Now it's up to you, God. If you provide the way, I'll be faithful. See, because of God's character, Nehemiah prepared in anticipation of God's response to his prayer. He didn't just pray and wait. While waiting, he prepared his heart and his mind to say, if God grants me this, this is what I'm going to do. Let's go to chapter two. Four months go by. Nehemiah serves the king. Nehemiah is struggling with this. He's troubled by it. His countenance, you know, his demeanor, his whole attitude, right? You see your kid walk by in the house and they're kind of shrugged and they're down. You say, what's the matter? And they say, nothing. And you're like, come on, no, I can tell something's the matter. Well, how did you know? You're different. Nehemiah was working and he was sad. And it says here in chapter two, the king looked at Nehemiah and said, why are you down? You're not sick. And Nehemiah thinks for a moment. I want you to notice as you're looking there at chapter 2, just look quickly at verse 4 into verse 5, and you'll notice that when the king offers the opportunity that Nehemiah had been preparing himself for, Nehemiah doesn't just launch. Notice what it says. He prayed a prayer to God. In that moment, he said to God, okay, here we go. It's go time. And then he goes to the king. He says to the king, the great city of my heritage the walls have been torn down. The temple's been destroyed. The city is in ruins. And he appeals to the king. And God moving in this moment in the heart of the king says to him, well, what can I do for you? And then Nehemiah offers this prayer. And I want you to listen carefully to what Nehemiah asks for. Because this is not simply, can I have a couple of days off? Remember, if you propose something to a king that took away the king's glory, you're dead. If you ask for the king something that you were not due, you could be dead. This is what Nehemiah responds with. He said, may I return home and begin to rebuild the walls of my, my king's or my God's city? And not only that, will you give me letters of permission so that as I go through different regions, I won't be arrested? And thirdly, would you buy all the materials? This is more than can I have a couple of days off. This is a big ask. It is an ask of faith. 
He had thought about what he needed. He didn't come back and say, oh, and by the way, and by the way, and by the way. He had plotted this out. He had planted it out. He had prayed about it in verse 8 of chapter 2. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. He gets it. Nehemiah knows. The only way he said yes was because God had been working on his heart. I want you to also know, this is kind of, I'm geeking out a little bit here with Old Testament history. 95 years previous to this moment in time, Daniel, the Old Testament prophet, prophesied this would happen. 95 years. God told Daniel, this is what I'm going to do through a king who's going to return my people after they have been punished and return them back to my city. Nehemiah saw a need and he sought the Lord. Nehemiah prepared in anticipation of God's answer, and Nehemiah faced external threats with faithfulness. Oh, I'd love to tell you that when God clears the way, the way is clear. (laughs) It's not true. When God clears the way, he clears it a foot at a time. And he doesn't clear all of it all the time. God's will can be done even in trouble. Even with letters of authorization and all the materials needed, When Nehemiah got to town, there were two particular men named Sanballat and Tobiah. And both of these men were against this happening. They liked Jerusalem in shambles. They liked being able to control these Jewish people. They were not fans at all. And they set about to destroy the work, to discourage the work and stop the work. But Nehemiah gathers a group of people together and he casts the vision. He doesn't cast the vision of his fame or his glory or even a new a great tribe of Israel, he cast a vision of bringing the glory of God to the eyes of the world. And God draws people to that. Let's go to chapter three. We're not gonna spend a whole lot of time in chapter three, but I'll simply tell you this. There's much written about the story of Nehemiah. In fact, if you go to most Christian bookstores or you look online, you're gonna find that most books about Nehemiah deal with leadership. They talk about what a great leader he was, and I'm not denying he was, but I believe that his leadership did not come from his own innate abilities. I think it came from the vision he had of God's glory. So I want to focus on why he did what he did, not how he did what he did. But in, in a great leadership act, Nehemiah gets all the people together, and this is what he says. He says, Steve Bearden, here's what you're going to do, buddy. You're going to build the 10 by 10 foot section of the wall outside your house. Now, why would I have Steve do that? because he's gonna care about that wall. Now, here's the truth of it matter. If you're anything like me, and I hope you're not, but I think you may be, if my neighbor's fence falls down in his backyard, I feel bad for him. If my fence falls down in my backyard, I fix it right away, how about you? Nehemiah gets the people together and he says, you're gonna work in front of your own place. You're gonna build a wall around your own estate. You're gonna do the things that you most care about. He puts people in their area of passion and interest and the wall starts getting built. Jump to chapter four. As soon as the enemies hear the news, they step up their efforts. Verse one. When Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry, was greatly incensed, and he ridiculed the Jews. You see, there was a threat. They were coming after them physically. And so he put everybody outside their house and he had everybody protect their section of the wall and to build that wall. And if they weren't building the wall, they were protecting those who were building the wall. But then... Sanballat comes together and he begins to do the very most demoralizing technique that works today. He began to ridicule, slander, and accuse them of treachery. He began to spread lies 
to demean their character. He questioned why Nehemiah was doing it. He said, Nehemiah wants to become king and all he's doing is fooling you. Now, listen to me. You may not agree, but I think I'm right on this one. If I walked up and punched you in the arm, it would hurt for a while, but the, the hurt would eventually go away and rather quickly. If I punched you in your character, that pain lingers a lot longer, doesn't it? When someone accuses you of having no integrity, when someone lies about you and slanders you, hey, if someone tells the truth about me, I just got to admit, yeah, I did that. But when someone accuses me of something, it hurts my heart, it hurts my soul. I begin to question whether or not any of this matters. And so Sanballat and Tobiah, once they physically threatened them and the, and the men were working with one hand on the wall and one hand on their sword, they realized we can't beat them this way, so let's just attack them internally. Let's just go after their character. And so what does he do? He prays. Now, here's, it gets kind of real here. If you read chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, you're going to realize uh, Nehemiah's prayer is kind of ugly. In the Psalms, it's called imprecatory. It means this is where David and other psalmists say to God, hey, would you just crush them off your globe? Would you grind them into the dirt and make them wish they never were alive? Now, I don't know about you, but my mom would have washed my, my mouth out with soap if at the dinner table I would have prayed that the kid who bullied me at school was crushed like a worm. That would not have gone well at Marilyn's table. So why does Nehemiah get away with it? Because if you read verses 4 and 5, this is what Nehemiah says. He says, God, would you send them into captivity like you sent us? Because they're demeaning your glory. He's not saying, God, you made a mistake. He's saying, God, it worked on us. It'll work on them. So he prays down this powerful prayer that they would be punished in the same way that the 12 tribes of Israel were. Yet they continue to work. And they work, and they work, and they work, and they pray. And the people are threatened. This isn't fake. Their lives are at risk. And look at verse 14. After I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He said, stay at the work. Remember God is faithful. But God's faithfulness, listen to me, is most often displayed when times are tough, not in the ease. When everything's smooth and there's no problems, the faithfulness of God is an option for us. But in the moments when we can't control it, when we're under threat, the faithfulness of God is what we must lean into. Nehemiah led so well because he had a God he could believe in. He saw a need and he prayed. He worked with anticipation for God to answer the prayer. When there were threats against his life, he stayed faithful. And then he faced internal threats with faithfulness. Go to chapter five. It was bad enough that the outside forces we're trying to physically hurt them and slander them and ridicule them, but there was also internal threats. It seemed bad enough that they were opposed, but what about friendly fire? One of the great oxymorons of all time, friendly fire. Friendly fire has ended most, more churches than Satan has. Friendly fire has ended most relationships. Friendly fire has ruined reputations, ministries, and many other things. 
Nehemiah's looking around and he's trying to keep the morale up and keep people focused on the vision, but the people faced shortages. They were so busy working on the walls and protecting themselves from the enemy that they couldn't go out and plant their crops. So what did they have to do? Then they had to go out and they had to buy food. Instead of raising their own, they had to buy food. Well, they weren't making any money because they had no jobs. And so what were they doing? They were mortgaging their fields, their vineyards, and their homes. And then not wanting to to mortgage their property, the only other option they had was to borrow money and they were being loaned money at high interest rates by their own family and friends. And fourthly, to repay their creditors, believe it or not, chapter five, verse five says, some of them had to sell their children into slavery. They had to give their children away to work other people's fields because they couldn't afford their own food. Now think about this with me. It'd be really easy to go, oh, this is sad. No, I want you to think about this. Sometimes fulfilling the vision that God has for us will cost us things and we will have to trust in God even in the midst of some of the worst personal crises we'll ever face. But when you have a God you can believe in, you remain faithful. Chapter five, verses six and seven. Nehemiah says, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then I accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. Uh Uh-oh. I don't know what your home life was like, but growing up as a kid, if my dad ever said, all right, boys, in the living room, uh, somebody was going under a verdict. Did you have that experience growing up? Whatever the term was when your parents called the family meeting, And you just kind of wondered. I knew I walked into the room with four brothers. I wondered if there would be four when we left, that kind of thing. (laughs) Nehemiah gathers the people together and he sits them down. He says, I have a major problem. Here's what we're going to do. And I love this. Nehemiah sits them down. He's very, very clear. He doesn't ask their opinion. He doesn't take a vote. He stands and he says, this is God's will for this moment. You can loan money, but you will loan it without interest. It's a principle of Israel from the day one not to take advantage of one another. If you have it to loan, loan it. You don't need interest back. Second, God's reputation is at stake and you're not serving it. Thirdly, if you have taken anything from another person because they had no food, you're gonna give whatever you took back and whatever interest you have received, you're gonna pay it back. You're gonna return it right now. And he called for an oath. In other words, I love this. In verses 12 and 13, he calls for an oath and this is what he says. This is, God wants, this is what God wants you to do. Tell him you're not gonna do it. <laughs> That's pretty good persuasion right there. He says, God says you're loaning at high interest and taking advantage of those that are rebuilding the glory of God by rebuilding the walls. You're taking advantage of them. You've taken their property from them, which God had given them when he brought the 12 tribes into the Holy Land. And he said, and now you're taking their children as your servants because they can't pay you back and you knew they couldn't pay you back. You can't even feed your neighbor. Tell God you're not gonna do the right thing. And the people fall on their knees and they repent because the glory of God is more important than the glory of man. Last thing I want to show you from the life of Nehemiah is Nehemiah lived a life that allowed the sovereignty of God to be known. It wasn't necessarily how he led. It's what he led to, the glory of God. I don't have time this morning, but I could show you many comparisons between Daniel and Nehemiah, both slaves, both served the purposes of God in a foreign land, and both did it without compromise. But just a few things about Nehemiah's character. One of the fringe benefits was that he received from the Persian government a food allowance. 
And he even says in this fifth chapter that he fed up to 150 different people in his home. And the amount of food that's shown there is pretty amazing. He's, but when it came to him, instead of taking his food allowance, he served food and wine out of his own personal resources. In other words, he paid for it himself. And we think, well, that's noble. But if he has an expense account, why doesn't he use his expense account? Think with me for a second. Where was the Assyrian money coming from? His Jewish brothers and sisters. He said, I can't take your money and buy this. Okay, I, this may sound like a political statement. It's not. It's a fact. Remember when they gave us our stimulus money and they congratulated themselves on giving us back the money that was ours to start with? Do you remember how that was kind of, I'm really tough, I'm having a hard time clapping for the stimulus money when actually it was my money you took from me and took too much anyway. Now you have excess, you give it back to me. I know, I'm done. But did you hear what Nehemiah says? I'm not going to tax you and then spend it on you so you can thank me. He says, I'm going to pay for it out of my own pocket because he believed that the glory of God should not be compromised by his own ease. Another fringe benefit was that he could have loaned people money to pay their taxes and exploited the poor, but Nehemiah says, I won't do that. Here's where I want to land. Look at 519. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. I don't know about you, but that kind of strikes me as like, yikes. It's not very humble, isn't it? It's like, God, pay me back for all the pain I've gone through. That's not what he's saying. Listen to what was going on here. Church, when we have a God we believe in, we know he's good, amen? We know he's generous, amen? We, we know he's for us, amen? Thank you, Woody. We know who God, when you have a God who you can believe in, you should not be surprised that when you honor him, he honors you. We don't honor him to get anything in return. But don't be surprised when our God is good, when our God is kind, when our God shows his love, when our God protects and provides like he promised. In every area of our lives, you may wonder, so Nehemiah is a good dude. Now there's something we learn from this. In every area of our lives, we can see what a life connected to God produces. When opportunities arise and the glory of God's will is present, we must seek to fulfill it. We pray about it. We see a need for God's glory and we ask God to move in such a way that we will be found faithful and others will know who he is. We're held together by our faith in his character, not our faith in our own strength. When threats to our character or to our lives or to our fortunes or to our status come for the glory of God, when people question, how can you stand up for a God like that? We stand up for God because we know who he is. And when the world makes fun of us and ridicules us and shames us and attacks our integrity because we believe the word of God is true and the world is doing that to us today, if we don't stand up because we believe in him, it's what the whole What About series is over. Can we trust in the character of God when it's on trial today? Who is going to stand up like Nehemiah and do the right thing in the right way for the duration of their life so that the glory of God is not compromised? That's us. That's why the church exists. To live life as Jesus lived it. To the glory of God so that on that night he was betrayed, Jesus said to his father, the glory you have given me, I have returned. We live as Nehemiah lives in a day of captivity, promising a God who delivers and being faithful 
knowing the blessings that will come when he delivers each of us. So maybe this morning, deliverance is where your heart is. You're stuck. You're empty. You're alone. The internal threats are as great as the external threats. I, I ask you trust in the character of God as shown in the life of Jesus. If we can walk with you this morning, encourage you in any way, pray with you this week, set you up to have a conversation with someone who may be able to disciple you through these moments, don't go this alone. Go together in community. Call people to the glory of God. We're gonna encourage you as we sing this next song to go to the back tables with the lamps lit. We'd love to meet with you and pray with you. Or maybe there's someone in your life right now who's stuck and you want us to join with you as you pray for them and encourage them. Share that with us. You can do that at the back tables. For the glory of God, we exist. And, for, and by the glory of God, we live. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.